section one of the national geographic magazine volume seven october eighteen ninety six this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org california by the honorable george c perkins united states senator the californian is never at a loss for some good words for his state if he is a pioneer he has wrought at the foundations and rejoices in the rise and progress of a commonwealth having now more than fourteen hundred thousand people the argonaut did not much concern himself with the geographical greatness of the future state he did not even know that there would be a state there was the great outlying territory of alta california stretching along for more than nine degrees of latitude and broadening inland to the crest of the sierra two hundred and fifty miles or more an area that today contains one hundred and fifty six thousand square miles or more than ninety nine million acres constituting the second largest state in the union he knew little of the coastline with its indentations a thousand miles in extent as he sailed into that magnificent bay after his voyage around cape horn and he knew less if after the long trail overland he looked down from the top of the sierra on the great valleys that lay between the mountains and the ocean the spanish dominion which lasted for fifty-three years did not concern him much since it left few vestiges of civilization mexican rule in alta california was little more than a continuation of that of the mother country the missions founded by the catholic fathers constituted a chain of settlements from the bay of san diego to the northern limit of the bay of san francisco each one making a little garden spot in the uncultivated waste they founded no towns and built no cities these missions in the height of their prosperity contained twenty four thousand indian neophytes possessing several hundred thousand cattle one hundred and thirty five thousand sheep and sixteen thousand horses and harvesting annually about seventy five thousand bushels of grain their decadence began when they were secularized by the act of the mexican congress and that decline has not been arrested to this day in the solitary places near where the fathers wrought there now are flourishing towns and cities and the picturesque ruins of these old missions are among the treasures of the land the new era in the history of california began on july seventh eighteen forty six when the american flag was hoisted at monterey by commodore sloat the discovery of gold followed on january nineteenth eighteen forty eight a month before the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo was signed and five months before americans had acquired their title to california henceforth there were to be a new people new laws and new institutions a few months after the discovery of gold twenty thousand pioneers started on the long overland journey from the banks of the missouri to california five thousand fell by the way through disease and hardships or were slaughtered by indians scarcely less than twenty thousand went by water either around cape horn or by way of the isthmus of panama in a few months one hundred thousand argonauts were in california twenty-five years after that date one billion dollars of gold had been taken out of the mines of the state a stream of gold was poured into the federal treasury during the civil war and there was another blessed outflow into the treasury of the sanitary commission for the relief of friend and foe alike of the gray as well as of the blue for the first twenty years in the history of california the only mode of transportation 
after leaving the navigable rivers and the coast, aside from walking, was by stagecoach, wagon, pack mules, and bronco horses. In Sacramento and Marysville, the two principal steamboat landings, it was a daily occurrence to have depart at break of day fifty or more stagecoaches and wagons loaded with passengers bound for the different mining towns and camps in the foothills and mountains. The return stages were so scheduled that they arrived back late in the afternoon or evening and, with fresh exchange of horses, would be ready to leave again the following morning. The early stage driver in California was perhaps the most unique and was certainly one of the most important personages in the community. His social standing and influence were rated in about the following ratio. For a two-horse stage driver to those of the sheriff, a four-horse stage driver to a member of the legislature, a six-horse stage driver to a mayor or governor, while the driver of an eight-horse stagecoach upon a popular route through several flourishing mining camps would not have surrendered his place with its influence and dignity for a seat in either house of Congress. The teamster also was a very important personage, and the driver of an eight- or ten-bell mule team with a single line considered his position and importance quite equal to those of the superintendent of a railroad. I speak advisedly, for I have been honored with the experience. Many of the richest mining camps could be reached only by long and circuitous routes, following up the forks and branches of rivers and creeks or over pathless hills and mountains. There being no roads or trails, the only manner in which supplies of provisions, clothing, and tools could be sent into the camp was upon pack mules. These animals were loaded down with from 250 to 400 pounds of freight, which they carried upon their backs with apparent ease, crawling along steep points, over sliding earth and rock, where it seemed almost impossible for a man to walk. The pack trains numbered from 50 to 100 mules in a train, each one in a single file, following the bell leader, which was usually a broken-down white horse that carried no load, and was directed by the owner of the pack train, who also had half a dozen or more Mexican vaqueros to assist in loading and unloading the mules. These brought up the rear of the caravan and saw that none of the trains stopped by the way. Arrived at its destination, the cargo of freight was delivered at the mining camp, and the return train took back to the valley letters for the dear ones far away and gold dust to the merchants to pay for the merchandise and freight. But no prosperous state was ever built over gold and silver mines. These were only a single element of future prosperity. The Argonaut had not come to build, but to find treasure for another and, as he thought, a better land. But these men were unconsciously making ready for the new commonwealth. Civilization could not survive without the state. There must be law and order, security for life and property. There must be organized society, or there would be chaos. Then the pioneers became builders. The bad element must be restrained, and the good must have protection. There could be no permanent society without homes. California was no longer a barren land. Pioneers here and there had cultivated a few acres as a sort of heartsease, they had begun to make places beautiful as the garden of the gods. The land seemed to look up and smile when touched by the various implements of cultivation. There was verdure in the desert. Wheat was no longer brought from Chile for bread. The wheat fields of California began to wave in the morning and evening breeze. 
The discovery of the agricultural capabilities of California was greater than the discovery of gold. Men ceased to talk about a worthless country. The land was vital with the elements of hidden fertility. There came a day when 600 ships were not enough to carry the surplus wheat crop of the state to foreign lands. The whole country, from not producing sufficient to feed 100,000 Argonauts at home, was now producing enough to feed more than a million people abroad, and the capacity of the state today is sufficient to sustain 10 millions. Nor has the mineral industry become obsolete. If the testimony of mining experts is to be taken, there is more gold in placers and quartz mines of the state than all that has been ever taken out, but the products of agriculture, of which there was once no promise, have annually for more than ten years past exceeded in value one hundred million dollars, although they have as yet reached only the first stage of development, while the annual production of gold and silver amounts to less than twenty million dollars. But these are not all the marvelous industrial changes that have been wrought. The Mission Fathers adopted a primitive system of agriculture. They selected stations near the ocean, where the moisture was greatest, and where there were living streams for artificial irrigation. They cultivated no crops that they could not water when the rains had ceased. They brought the olive and the vine from Spain, and naturalized them in their gardens. The orange from Seville also sometimes bloomed and fruited there, but there were no blossoming orchards beyond, and no vineyards ripened the grape under the long summer sun. The native Mexican cared for none of these things. He was content with his jerked beef and his tortillas. Fruit was reserved as the luxury of those who cultivated it in consecrated gardens. It has been recorded that many a pioneer was ready to exchange a silver dollar for an apple. The orchard and the vineyard became a necessity. What was good in the old homestead ought to be good about the new one. Seeds were sent in letters cuttings and small fruit trees came as the most precious freight of the early steamers by way of the isthmus orchards began to blossom in the valleys and the vine made many little patches of green on the hillsides the wild vine was found climbing many a tree in the ravines and along the brooklets of the coast range and it could not be otherwise than that better ones would there kindly take to the soil and give abundant fruitage the best were brought from Spain and the wine districts of southern France. The mongrel and foxy grapes that suited eastern palates did not win any place in the viticulture of the state. The motto of the Californian everywhere is, Get the best. After the vineyards of Spain and France had been laid under contribution, princely toques and mellow muscats, with more than twenty other semi-tropical varieties, began to crowd the home markets. The wine grape climbed the hills and made the claret that was sold under a French label to thousands of eastern consumers. Eighteen million gallons of wine were the product of a single year. Grapes from these vineyards were shipped to every large city in the Union. More than 150,000 acres are now covered with vines in California, and the average product for an acre is nearly double the average product of the vineyards of France and Spain. For many large areas, the average product is 12,000 pounds an acre, while in special instances, the product reaches 20,000 pounds per acre. Beyond all other states of the Union, California is the land of the vine. More than two-thirds of the arable land of the state is suitable for viticulture and other fruit culture. There is more land in this one state suitable for the production of raisin grapes 
than there is adapted to that culture in Spain. When the musket began to hang in golden clusters and to turn into raisins on the vines, there were the first suggestion of the great raisin crop that could ultimately supply every market of this country. That the raisin product now falls short of this is because of the keen competition with the crop of Spain, that is produced for less than one-half the outlay for labor, that the same production costs in California. But layer for layer, and box for box, these domestic producers challenge for quality the best in the world. A small industry became a great one by beneficent protection. More is the pity that any part of it should have been withdrawn until these pioneers have fought out the battle for every home market in the land. The raisin product of the state last year was not less than 54 million pounds. Not only is California golden-sandaled, but the very sun in the heavens turns her fruit into gold. Such a miracle of transformation was wrought in Southern California as had not been witnessed beyond her borders. The dry land that had become dust under the hoofs of famishing cattle took on perpetual verdure when the streams were trailed over it and the orange blossomed and fruited under a semi-tropical sun. Towns sprang up and cities were built largely from the proceeds of this citrus industry. Water was impounded on the mountains or was recovered from sunken streams in the plains. The deserts became more than a garden. A great citrus product, soon to rival that of Florida, was the promise of the future. How has it been fulfilled? More than 8,000 carloads of oranges were shipped overland as the product of the season of 1894-95. to 95. Not less than 14,000 acres have been planted with lemon trees, with the certainty that when the maximum of this branch of citrus culture shall have been reached, this fruit will compete for the first place in all the leading home markets of the United States. Of deciduous fruits altogether, 4,435 carloads were shipped overland in 1895. The olive took kindly to the soil. There was, in fact, no product of Spain or of any other country about the Mediterranean that could not be duplicated in California. The fig ripens as it does about the borders of the Adriatic, while of prunes more than 32 million pounds represent the annual production of the state. With wine to make the heart glad, oil to make the face shine, and honey to sweeten the lips, the Californian may speak with enthusiasm of all this wealth of resources. Then there is 100 million invested in the dairies of the state, and 40 million pounds or more represents the beet sugar product of the state for the season of 1894 to 95, an amount larger than the aggregate production of all the rest of the country. Passing from these details of production, it remains to be noted that California is the most picturesque state in the Union. This wealth of scenery can never be obscured. There is the great Sierra Range stretching along the eastern boundary for 500 miles, having a width of 70 miles and summits ranging from 7,000 to more than 14,000 feet. Nineteen of these mountain peaks rise to the height of 10,000 feet, and seven of them rise still higher until Mount Whitney wears the crown, rising into the heavens to the height of 14,900 feet. Some of these summits are still warm with volcanic heat. There they stand, white-hooded, with glaciers moving and grinding along their flanks, as if a thousand years were but as yesterday, letting loose the mountain streams that go singing down to the sea. There is the divine sculpture of the rocks, the lakes that mirror these eternal ramparts, 
the great forests that sing in storm and sigh in the summer breeze, and the groups of sequoia overmatching in height and circumference any other conifers on the globe. There the clouds come down and kiss the mountains, and the lesson is renewed every day of eternal repose and majesty and strength. There is the fir tree with its balsam, clean and sanitary, inviting the invalid to come for his healing. There are the cedars, more stately than those of Lebanon, and pines that were dropping their cones long before the first white man had set foot upon the continent. How little of all this reserve of natural wealth can be set forth by inventory or speech! Hardly an impression has been made on those virgin forests. There is the great sanitary district, free from dust, with pure water flowing out of the granite, and an atmosphere as sweet as the breath of heaven. These mountains are not solitary, but are rich in floral and animal life. There butterflies flit, and birds sing, and huge grizzly bears come out of caves and caverns. There the mariposa lily unfolds its petals, and the snow plant, red as blood, springs in a day mysteriously out of the margin of the receding banks of snow. There the lakes repose in bowls, with mountains for rims. There, eight thousand feet above the level of the sea, is Lake Tahoe, more than twenty miles long and fifteen hundred feet deep, and more than five hundred lakelets mirror the frowning battlements that rise above them. Here are the great reservoirs that send their waters down to fertilize the hot valleys below. More than four million acres of land are irrigated by these mountain streams, and made among the most productive in the state. Millions more will be watered from the great reservoirs that are held in check by these great forests, so that there is neither wasting flood nor withering drought. In that great mountain range there is one of the seven wonders of the world. From the ends of the earth men come to see the awful grandeur of Yosemite, which no artist can paint and no pen can adequately describe. They will look up to the mighty fall which, in three leaps, descends 2,600 feet to the floor of the valley. They will see the great Vernal and Nevada Falls pouring out their mighty floods into the valley below. Standing on the floor of this valley, 4,060 feet above the level of the sea, the tourist looks up to these granite walls, varying in height from 1,200 to 4,600 feet. Here's the roar of the great cataracts, sees the awful battlements, where in the winter the snow banners float from their tops, sees the bridal veil floating over a vertical wall and falling for nearly a thousand feet, watches the rainbows as they are set in this veil by the slant rays of the setting sun, and walks through this valley of wonderland six miles long, himself wondering whether by some mighty convulsion of nature the crust of the earth has fallen sheer down four thousand feet, cleaving the granite on either side as it went, or whether the glaciers have ploughed and eroded planing and polishing the granite on either side, until Yosemite today is one of the sublime spectacles of the world. Cathedral spires and domes are there for his worship, and the meadows are carpeted for his coming. Out of the valley a little way he will come upon groves of sequoia, the largest of which he will find by actual measurement to be 350 feet high and more than 30 feet in diameter. Away to the north, in the same great Sierra range is Mount Shasta, 14,442 feet high, wearing its eternal mantle of white, as if set there as a great white throne for the coming judgment of the world. Nor does this wealth of the picturesque end here. 
there is the coast range that rims the great valleys on the ocean side broken here and there but extending parallel with the sierra for hundreds of miles for part of the way there is an inner coast range enclosing such beautiful valleys as the santa clara sonoma and napa presenting a series of landscapes that are unsurpassed on the pacific coast for quiet picturesque effect here the apricot and the prune come to perfection and the vineyards that creep up the mountains in some places to their summits produce the most luscious of all the table grapes that are sent late in season to new york and other eastern markets it is in that part of the coast range extending from monterey bay to the northern border of mendocino county a distance of about three hundred miles and averaging about twenty-five miles in breadth and only there in the whole world that the redwood sequoia sempervenus is found the first in commercial value of all the trees in california and for the area covered probably the most valuable timber tree in the united states it belongs to the cedar family lacking the pungent odor of the white cedar but surpassing all others of this family in symmetry of form and in size which in some instances is but little less than the related species the sequoia gigantea which is found nowhere else but on the western slope of the sierra in isolated groves at elevations from three thousand to five thousand feet these redwood trees frequently attain an elevation of two hundred feet and a diameter of from ten to twelve feet the average is something less during the past season a redwood tree yielding forty eight thousand feet of mercantile lumber or a full cargo for a schooner of one hundred and twenty five tons was cut by a lumberman in mendocino county one of the redwood trees known as the fremont tree in the group near santa cruz is two hundred and seventy five feet high and is nineteen feet in diameter six feet above the ground in the hollow of this tree a family some years ago found a comfortable residence for an entire winter it was in or near this grove that fremont encamped before the conquest of california had been fully made this great timber district is within the humid belt of california and all the picturesque valleys that extend along the base of these wooded mountains have a network of living streams that find their way to the sea the valleys are dotted with beautiful towns and the landscape is a succession of vineyards and orchards this redwood besides its extensive use for the interior finish of houses is everywhere admired for its natural color tones and is now in quest by europeans for ornamental use the pine and the fir tree so common in california are denizens of many countries but the redwood makes here the one exclusive timber belt of its kind in the world the sierra and the parallel coast range enclose the great and continuous valley of the san joaquin and the sacramento three hundred and fifty miles long and with a breadth of about forty miles making an aggregate area of about fourteen thousand square miles forty-five years ago the greater part of the land in the san joaquin valley could have been bought at a dollar twenty-five an acre thirty-five years ago there were thousands of acres which the government had offered at the minimum price that found no buyers the parched and desolate valley lay there at the base of the mighty sierra a down which the mountain streams descended but made no fruitful fields Today there are flourishing cities and towns vineyards and orchards and great wheat fields from that valley enough raisins were produced this year to supply two-thirds of the consumption of the whole country from this and the related valleys nine thousand carloads of oranges and four hundred thousand cases of lemons will this season go forward to eastern markets 
Add to this product not less than 4,000 tons of raisins, and we come to see the relation of all this wealth of production of the great mountain ranges, which send their streams down to fertilize this great valley. From the hot plains men look up to these snow-clad mountains and know that the reservoirs will never fail, and that the winter gales that sing in the tops of the fir trees and smite the giant sequoia serve best to make eternal spring in the valley below. The San Joaquin from the south and the Sacramento from the north flow through the length of these valleys and enter the northern end of the Great Bay of San Francisco, an inland water 35 miles long and averaging 8 miles in breadth. There great navies ride at anchor, contending peacefully for some of the richest commerce in the world. There is one other particular in which the natural wealth of California surpasses that of any other state. There are more than 100 mineral springs that together possess all the remedial qualities that are found in the most notable mineral springs of Europe. Hardly more than half of the whole number that are known to exist in the state have ever had any scientific description. All known minerals that have any healing qualities are held in solution in these waters. Some of these springs have more than local fame for their curative effects. Sulfur, iron, arsenic, and soda are sometimes found in a single group of springs, as at the geysers, where the waters boil and seethe and roar, sending up clouds of steam day and night, as if, after the spent volcanic forces, the bedevilment of nature was prolonged for the entertainment of tourist and stranger. Wherever one may go, in all the length and breadth of the state, the series of striking pictures never fails. Nothing is tame or insignificant, nothing, from the winter bloom of gardens, with all the affluence of color and perfume, to the mountains that are tipped with gold and purple as the sun sinks into the Pacific. In one other particular, California has greater natural wealth than any other state. Nowhere else in all the Union are there so many climates. No non-resident ever quite gets to the bottom of this mystery. He will read of trains beleaguered by snowdrifts in the mountains, and on the same page of almond and orange orchards in bloom, of ice that is cut out in solid blocks on mountain lakes, and of the mercury that marks 75 degrees of heat in some other place, of men in overcoats in San Francisco in July, and of the mercury that has gone up to 100 degrees in some of the interior valleys. The mean temperature of San Francisco for the whole year is 54 degrees, the mean for the four seasons being 54, 57, 56, and 50 degrees, a difference of only 7 degrees for the entire year. There is a coast climate, an interior climate, a mountain climate, with a great number of subdivisions. Going north 10 miles to the small town of San Rafael, there is a difference in the summer climate of not less than 10 degrees. Riding for two hours by rail from the coast inland to the San Joaquin Valley, the difference will be not less than 35 degrees in midsummer. On the inland side of the coast range, as in the Santa Clara Valley, for instance, the heat of the summer is greater by several degrees than on the ocean side. The ocean, the coast range, the great interior valleys, and the vast Sierra will account for many of these variations of climate. A well-known author has written a book about Our Italy in Southern California. Where there are all the climates of Italy and Spain, the resident only encounters the perplexities of choice. There are also the same variations of moisture, ranging for a year from 8 inches of rainfall up to 60 inches, according to the geographical situation which one may choose, 
and these extremes within the limit of 200 miles. And better than mountain and valley, and all that goes to make a picturesque state, is that system of public education which gives instruction to more than 200,000 youth and is crowned by two great universities with doors freely opened to every youth who is qualified to enter. California was admitted to the Union after a long and eventful struggle. Her constitution, framed by men from North and South, dedicated the land to freedom. The pioneers had staked their all for law and order as the very cornerstone of an enduring state. Isolated by nearly 2,000 miles from the great family of states, the very stars and stripes that waved over them gave them a passionate longing for recognition. When the news of admission came, a tumultuous shout went up to the heavens amid jubilant songs and tears. The pioneers who embraced that day knew no country but the Union, nor have they known any other since that day. For forty-five years they have celebrated the anniversary of admission, accentuating it as no other state has done. They have stamped it as a legal holiday, the one day of jubilee wherein love of a particular state takes the higher interpretation of love for the Union. A generation born on the soil rejoices in the designation of native sons as the richest birthright and heritage that any land can give. This is California, the keystone state in the great empire that is looming up on the Pacific. End of section 1. Recording by Marianne in Sao Paulo, December 2017.